John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll be looking by God's grace this morning simply at verse 12. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we do. Father, open our eyes that we might see things that we do not see. We pray that you would reveal to us things that we do not know. We pray that you would teach us and things that we are not but should be. We pray that you would make us all for your namesake and for your honor and glory. Holy Spirit, open minds to understand, open hearts to believe. We pray that you would instruct us as we submit ourselves, all of us, to the word of God this morning trusting in its inspired and inerrant writing and its sufficient application. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's begin, if you would, with me. Let's back up to verse 9, because verse 9 through the end of verse 13 really comprises one thought unit, but it is So immense that we need to stop and take our time getting through that. But let's begin reading in verse 9 so that we have the picture of what is occurring here in verse 12 for us this morning. There was the true light, meaning Christ, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that word meaning house or family or people, the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. Remember, the scope has started broad in verse 9, and it is narrowed down to the very people who of all people should have known who he was and received him, and yet they did not. And so he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but going back to that verb, who were born, they were born of God. Rejection seems to be the rule, doesn't it, as we begin in verse 9? You get the sense that when Jesus, the living word, came into the world, the entire world rejected him. And that's a, a, a sense that is not altogether wrong. And we get the sense that there is mass rejection as we talked about last Sunday. And and that rejection seems to be the rule, not only in this text, but in our experience. There are things about our experience that tell us this is not incorrect. There are many of us sitting in the room this morning who have loved ones who, for whatever reason, have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And our hearts are heavy because of that. 
We weep because of that. We pray for that. We, we ask God to do what only God can do, and that is to grant sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and life to the dead. But the reality is that we know what this world does with Jesus, and by and large, it rejects him. This is no surprise. But John, in, in writing the gospel, we are here this morning because... By God's grace, so many of us are not characterized by verses 9 through 11. We are characterized by that first phrase in verse 12. But as many as. There's a contradiction here, brothers and sisters. And the whole sermon this morning is a contradiction to what we saw last week. There's a contradiction in the reality of those who believe who are no longer rejecting, but are found in faith, clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And so this morning, I want us to look at, in verse 12, the necessities of receiving Christ. The necessities of receiving Christ. And let me just make a couple of broad observations, if I may, before we dig in and dig down into this text. When we look at verse 12, verse 12 is the apex of the entire introduction, verses 1 through 18, in this gospel. And if you remember, verses 1 through 18, the prologue of the gospel, is simply a roadmap for the entirety of what's to come. Everything that's to come from chapter 1, verse 19, down through the end of chapter 20, is charted for us in succinct form here in these first 18 verses. And so these are not unimportant verses. This is front-loaded truth. This is compressed truth. It is dense. It is meaty. And verse 12 forms the very core of everything that John is saying in this introduction. Therefore, verse 12 is the core of everything that follows in the rest of the gospel. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, even to them who believe in his name. And so this is a critical verse. And I, I'll be honest, I wrestled with this verse, whether or not to preach that this morning or wait until next Sunday, because I've had a raspy voice all week. And knowing so many people would be traveling, but I'm thankful you're here. And so I thought, well, what do I do? And and. I thought, well, I'll go to one of the Psalms, and, but the Lord just continued to impress upon my heart the importance of this verse. It, it is the core, it is central to everything that John writes about from here on. It lays that critical foundation. But then, I also want you to note this about verse 12, and you can mark this down in whatever way you take notes or in your mind, but file it away with this realization that verse 12 answers, or at least it begins to answer, the question of how it is that we are saved. Not only the what of our salvation, but the how of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not a blind faith. It is a faith that ought to be a curious faith. 
We ought to not only know that we are saved, we ought to know how it is that we are saved because the details are themselves glorious. How is it that Jesus saved you? Is is your faith simply resigned to dwell on the surface or is your faith biblically informed enough to go for a deep dive and to understand the glories and the majesty of God's salvation and how he has worked that out in your life? I submit you need the second thing, not a surface faith, but a deep faith that understands the marvelous workings of God. Verse 12 begins to help us do that. How do we move from such virulent rejection to faith. How did you come to that point? How, how did you, maybe, maybe you didn't grow up um, having the advantage of being in a Christian home, or maybe you did and you rejected it for a time. But, but how is it in whatever case, maybe you came from an atheist background, but how is it that we move to not being the people of verses 9 through 11, and we are actually the people of verse 12? How does that happen? We need to know. We need to know how it is that we have passed from death to life. Not just say, well, I guess I'm on the life side of the equation. But how? Tell me how you got there. Explain that to me. And John does that for us. Last observation before we begin to pick the meat off the bones. I think that's an apt illustration right after Thanksgiving. Verse 12, you need to know this, is constructed like a sandwich. And the meat in between is that middle phrase, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. It is bookended by essentially a synonymous statement on either side. As many as received him and those who believe in his name are essentially synonymous statements. And they sandwich in between them the the very answer and the very heart of how it is we came To pass from death to life. To move from rejection to belief. He'll continue that on next week. You've got to come back. Next week to look at verse 13. But let's look at verse 12 this morning. And that glorious sandwich that God has created with the truth sandwiched in between the human response. There is the divine initiative. God gave them the right. God did something. And so let's begin to pick. Number one, I want you to see the necessity of limitation this morning. The necessity of limitation. Look how verse 12 begins. But as many as. As many as. This is John early on in his gospel charting the way ahead. Doing away with the idea That salvation is universal. It is not universal. It is limited to as many as received him. The tragedy is that verses 9 through 11 still exist in far too many hearts. Not everyone is going to heaven. Thus we are here. Thus we have the great commission to go and to proclaim the name of Christ to everyone. 
Because in that proclaiming, God will give the right to as many as. He will give that right to some. To believe in His name. And so John begins with limiting the scope. And I I want you to notice something else. Down in that middle part, down in the meat of this sandwich, there is that little clause, the children of God. The children of God, brothers and sisters who know Jesus as your Savior, we must be careful that we do not fall into the trap of believing or saying, even inadvertently, that all men are the children of God. We are not all children of God. We are all created by God. We all bear the image of God. But only those who believe, only those to whom he has given the right to believe, can be called the children of God. Notice John is very specific with his language. He limits And then he names. But as many as receive him, something transpires in them that is altogether different. It's not something that can be generated within themselves. In fact, go over to John chapter 3. Ironically, this is the text that so many will run to to try to delimit John's limitation. And they will say that, well, but but John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That must mean that all the world then are children of God, that all have come to the Father through the Son. That's not what it's saying. Because notice that Jesus and Nicodemus are having this drawn out discussion. And, and John 3.16 is in the context of that greater discussion. So to really get what they're saying, you need to know what was said before and you need to know what was said after. That's how we deal with any conversation. But Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus. And he's talking about the new birth, the, the, the spiritual birth that is from above, not from below. And he's like, Nicodemus, you don't get it. That which is born, verse 6. Of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, that which is born of water through the physical breaking of water and the physical birth, that is a physical reality. But I am speaking to you of a spiritual reality that does not come about like your physical birth. In other words, Nicodemus, there's a division, there's a difference, there's a limitation. That which is born in the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And the spirit is not the flesh and the flesh is not the spirit. Don't confuse the two, Nicodemus. If we were to take this back in to chapter 1, verse 12, not all who are born are born children of God. That is a special birth. That is a spiritual birth that has to happen. And so it is limited. And what is it limited by? Look at the text. But as many as, and notice the next word, received him. But as many as received him. That's what limits. 
This is synonymous again with the end of the verse, those who believe. And his name will say more about that in a moment. But only those who believe or those who receive are granted life. Not to just claim a name, but they're actually given something. They're given life. Go back to, go to the end of the gospel to John chapter 20. And we find this in John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these things have been written. What, but, but what things, John? Everything in this gospel. But these have been written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That my Messiah is Jesus. That Jesus is Messiah. The Son of God. And notice that last phrase. And that believing you may have life in His name. You may have life in His name. That's the point. That's what John is after. And so those who become the children of God only become the children of God through that narrow window of belief. And that is why John has written. Notice the end of verse 12 is almost verbatim with chapter 20, verse 31. Almost verbatim. I love it when God in his word is so consistent. He starts with that. He finishes with that. Here's the purpose, that you might have life, that you might find eternal life in his name. It's incumbent upon us now to define what we mean by belief, what we mean by faith. You know, there's certain terms that in, unfortunately, in our current culture that have become unhelpful. They're, they're so overused, they're so abused, they're so redefined that, that it's almost pointless to try to use them anymore. And I, I would submit to you that faith is one of those words. It can mean anything. Oh, I'm a person of faith. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, they practice their faith. What, do you, what faith? Biblically speaking, not all who have faith are genuine believers. But I was told all I had to do is believe. All I had to do is have faith. But do you know what that means? That there are plenty of people who believe in Jesus. They believe about Jesus. They don't deny that there was a man named Jesus. In fact, they may even go to church. They may even be involved in various things that are good things. But it's not saving faith. In fact, Jesus himself uh, gives us a demonstration of this. Would you turn over to chapter 2, verses 23 through 25? Here's the tragedy. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many did what? Say it. Many did what? Believed in his name. Observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. 
Can I say it this way? They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. There's a difference. It doesn't matter what we claim about Jesus, what we want to label our relationship with him as being. If Jesus doesn't claim us as his own, it doesn't matter. They have apparently a very shallow faith. What's the faith seem to be based on? The fact that he was working signs. That he was doing things from which they received benefit. Because if you go over just a couple of more chapters to chapter 6, notice what happens. In chapter 6, towards the end of that chapter, Jesus, beginning of verse 59 begins to deliver some hard truth. Verse 60, Jesus says this, when his disciples heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? They didn't mean, like, instruct us, Jesus. They meant, this is crazy. I I can't go there. I cannot accept that. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled, At this said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If this scandalizes you, wait till you see what comes next. It is the Spirit who gives life. There again, God giving. Do you see that? God gives, just as in verse 12. The Father gave, so here the Spirit gives and the Word gives. The Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, wait a minute. Chapter 2 said they were believing. Jesus says here to this crowd, there are some of you who don't believe. You may say you believe. You may have followed me for the last number of days or weeks. But the reality is that some of you here do not believe, for Jesus knew from when? The beginning. Who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would do what? Betray him. Ah. So now chapter 2 becomes clear, doesn't it? Kind of sounds just harsh at first. I understand that. But the more we go through the story, we find Jesus was right not to have believed in them because these are the ones who would ultimately turn on him, betray him, and hand him over for crucifixion. And so, as we define what faith is back in chapter 1, verse 12, we have to say this. It is not superficial faith. It is not faith based on what we get. It is not faith that is fleeting when we hear hard truths. Rather, it is a robust faith. To receive Him means to, to fully embrace everything about Jesus. Everything. Everything. Here's my concern. With American Christianity today, we tend to bifurcate Jesus. Well, I like when Jesus said that but I don't so much agree with when he said this. I'll take that Jesus, but not that one. 
I think that is not correct. That must be misunderstood. We need to reinterpret, reimagine. Do you accept him all or not at all? To receive him means to receive him in the entirety of what he has revealed about himself. To as many as received him in totality, in full, to embrace him, to cling to him, to depend upon him. Those are the ones we're speaking of in verse 12. As many as received him in his fullness. Not to try to decide, well, we like miracle Jesus, what we don't like is the Jesus of chapter 6 who starts talking about things like sin and crucifixion and resurrection. We don't like that Jesus. We like the one that gave us food and healed our children and worked miracles and calmed the storms and all of those sorts of things. John says, no. Remember, it's only to those who receive the entirety of what he has revealed about himself to be true. You must accept him in all that he has said. The necessity of limitation. Secondly, there's the necessity of grace. Look at the the middle part now, the meat of the verse. But as many as received him, they did so. Now it explains how it is they received him. It is because he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who receive, to those who believe, we can only look back and say, well, the only reason I believe, the only reason I came to Christ, the only reason I accept the revelation of God is because God gave me the right. God gave, the Father gave, the Word gave. God did this. God birthed death out of life. I'm sorry, life out of death. He took out the stony heart, the dead heart, and he put in a heart of flesh, a a heart that could believe and did. And I know when we look at our salvation, we're humans, we're limited, (laughs) we're not God. But when we look at our salvation, we tend to look at it through the lens of what? What we did. A prayer we prayed, perhaps, or a decision we made, and we, we tend to view that as the, the, the impetus or the cause of our salvation. But as we grow in our understanding of Scripture, it becomes very clear that's how we responded, but that's not actually how it happened. God did this so that God alone is praised, so that God alone is trusted, so that God alone is depended upon, so that God alone is clung to So that when we come to the end of our life, we don't lack assurance. Because can I tell you something? From the moment of your conversion until the moment of your death, many things in your life are going to change. People who were with you at the time when when the Lord saved you will not be there at the end. If you believed because of mom and dad or because of grandma and grandpa or you you did something, because they're going to pass off the scene someday. And was your faith based on them or was it based on Christ? The culture around you is going to change. Whether or not you're accepted in this world is going to change. But one person will never change. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I want my faith coming from Him and through Him and back to Him in worship. So that when everything else is stripped away, I'm not depending upon anything that contributed to my salvation other than Him giving me the right. That's why John Newton, the slave trader and wretch by his own admission in his hymn, Amazing Grace, toward the end of his life said this, My memory is almost gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Maybe Newton couldn't even remember the time, the very moment that he was saved. Maybe Newton had forgotten the words that he prayed, but he knew one thing. He was a sinner, and Christ was a Savior. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here. It's not based on anything else. It's not based on how we respond. Did I respond enough? Did I believe enough? No, that is not what saving faith is. Saving faith is simply rooted in a person. To those who believe in his name. To believe him. As Abraham did. He didn't believe in God. Abraham believed God. Genesis 15.6 It is... This faith that is given from God, again, go to chapter 3. That kind of faith doesn't come because of some man-made endeavor. That which is from the flesh is flesh, and that which is from the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus says in John 6, this is of the Spirit, right? We read it. It's a spiritual birth. I want you to notice something interesting, not to nerd out on you. But something you need to know and understand. When John says to them he gave, it is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which signifies a past action that is complete. It's done. God in the past gave this to them. The ability to believe was given by the word. The Lord Jesus Christ. He determined Those who were his and he gave them faith at a point in time and he gave that to them. Notice John doesn't say he made it possible for them to become the children of God. No, he gave them. And the implication is clear. When something is given, it is also what? Received. So when John uses this verb, He does so with the understanding throughout his gospel that when there is giving, there is also receiving. So that it is not contradictory to say God chose you, God gave this gift to you, to also say it again, not in contradiction, to say you must receive it. You must believe it. Is it really a gift if the person takes it and drops it and walks away from it? No. To say that There is a gift given, implies that it was received as the gift, right? And so there is a human response to this. But again, remember, we're answering the question of how did it happen? How did I come to respond? Well, we came to respond because God initiated by granting a right. He gave it to those who believe. Or rather, they believed because he gave it. The word in the Greek Again, not to nerd out on you, but 
some English translations have not done well. They've translated, he gave the power to become the children of God. That indicates what? That, that we were able to do something. I can kind of force myself on God. I can enact my own power upon him, but that's not the, the right word. The Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we get dynamite. The word John uses here is the word exousia, which means authority or right. And so he gave them the right. He gave them the authority. He gave them the ability to be named among his children. And from this, we, we draw the picture of adoption, which again is rampant throughout John's gospel. What happens in adoption? The judge renders a verdict. This child now bears the name of this family with all rights and privileges pertaining thereto. In Luke chapter 15, we, we, we see that beautiful picture, don't we? The son who, according to Jewish custom, had rebelled against his father, and he goes off into the pig pen. And in Jewish custom, he was written off as dead. Dead to the family, dead to the world, doesn't belong anymore. But the father doesn't give up, does he? He seeks the son. And the son comes home, and when the son comes home, what does the father do? He puts upon him the royal robe, and he puts the ring on his finger. The ring of what? Exousia, authority, right to exercise the family name, to conduct business on behalf of his father. John says here, but as many as receive him, they do so Again, they do respond, they do receive, but they only do that because God has done something for them. He had already granted the right, given the right, sovereignly acted toward them before they even remotely desired God. And this shouldn't surprise us. Romans 5, 8 says what? While we were still sinners, God had done what? He had already commended his love to us. God has acted on our behalf. We respond. Think about the people Jesus is saying this to. I love how when Dr. Lawson was here a couple of weeks ago, how he emphasized this over and over again. Jesus isn't preaching this to his friends. He's preaching this to his enemies. You're the ones. Verse 11, he has just said to his own, his own Jewish people. And so verse 12 is kind of a de facto slap in the face. Hey, listen, just because you have Abraham's physical DNA doesn't do anything for you. Those who are Abraham's, according to Paul in the book of Galatians, are Abraham's by what? By blood or by faith? How do we become children of Abraham? By faith. And Jesus is saying to to those in verse 11, listen, you may be his descendants, but you are not God's true descendants through Abraham because you lack the faith. You have no power. 
to believe unless it is given to you. You have no right to believe. You have no authority to lay claim on eternal life apart from God birthing you in this transaction. But as many as did receive him, they do so because he gave them the right to become the children of God. Just another note on the, that, that phrase, children of God. John uses a different word for us who believe than he does of Jesus. The, when he speaks of Jesus, he exclusively uses the term huios in Greek, means son. But here he speaks of us being technon, small children. And so there's a distinction between Christ and us. God, as, as Murray Harris said, has only one son by nature, but many sons by adoption. We are children, plural of God, through God's singular one son. So don't confuse that. Some of the cults will try to twist on that a little bit and lean on it and say, oh, we're all gods. No. You're adopted as children of God, but you are not the same as the Son of God. There is a, a definite distinction between the two. And so there is a necessity of grace. If God did not act toward us, we would not ever respond toward him. And then third, this morning, there is the necessity of faith. The necessity of our response. Again, going back to John chapter 20, verse 31, there at the end of the gospel. These things are written that you might believe and that in believing you might have life in his name. You must believe. To the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe you must but believe you only can by God's grace. I want you to notice in closing this necessity of faith that faith is not an unregulated concept. As I said earlier, there are certain words that have become so ubiquitous, so undefined, so mealy-mouthed, I guess, if you will, that they, they, they don't mean anything anymore give you another example, the term evangelical. I love the word evangelical. One who is for the gospel. But what is evangelical synonymous with in our culture? Politics. We hear more about evangelicals as it relates to how people vote than we do what the word really means to be for the gospel. Faith is the same way, but here it is not an unregulated term. Notice what John says. Those who believe in the name, in his name, fully embracing all that the word reveals and is. Whatever Jesus says, you must believe. Whatever Jesus says, you must believe. If. You are to have eternal life. If Jesus is to believe in you, you must believe in his name. All of him. All of him. When you married your spouse, did you marry part of them or did you marry all of them? You marry all of them, don't you? 
the commitment is total. The commitment is whole. There's no bifurcated life where this part of me is married to her, but not these other parts. We are the bride of Christ. We are wholly his. That's what faith is. It is to embrace everything about the Savior. And that is why we can look at a a, a very difficult passage like chapter 2 where many believed in his name and and, and American Christianity wants, wants to say, yay, they're all Christians. Jesus says, not so fast. Because as he goes on and reveals more about himself to them, they say, well, we don't like that too much. Then he says, then you weren't really a follower of mine. Belief is regulated. It has to be belief in all of him. I want you to notice something else. When John uses the term believe in his gospel, he does not ever do so as a noun. John doesn't speak of faith as a noun. He speaks of faith as an action. And the word here, believe, is a verb. It is to believe in Jesus. And I know we've all said this. When somebody asks us about our testimony, but brothers and sisters, let us strive to be biblically faithful and accurate, shall we? And clear up a lot of Christianese that may have crept into us, culturally speaking. Don't ever speak of your salvation as something you have done or something you have experienced, past tense. It is something that we do from then on. So don't say, I believed on Jesus in 19-whatever. Say, I believed then and I am believing now in Jesus. It's not how you started the race and then everything else after that doesn't matter. It is how you run the race and how you finish the race. Are you still believing Because obviously, as we move through John's gospel, there are people who what? Stop believing. And so our faith is regulated. Our belief is regulated. There is a time in terms of human response when it begins, but that is by no means the capstone of our faith. It is a faith that must continue on until the very end. And along the way, as we learn more and more about Jesus, if we are truly his, we will believe in that name. In all of that name. In everything about that name. And in believing. And in believing in that regulated way, according to scripture, you will have what? Life in his name. You'll live like he lives. Eternally, joyfully, for the worship of God. How many of you have ever been confused because you had a friend or a loved one who said they believed Jesus and then they walked off on him? It can be very confusing, can't it? It can be very difficult. One of my closest friends, my roommate in college, was 
the big man on campus. He was a vocal, outspoken witness for Jesus Christ, but he died as an unbeliever. He died having experimented with all sorts of world religions. He died having renounced the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. That's hard to reconcile. But we can reconcile it. Because belief in Jesus is enduring belief. Saving faith is enduring faith. And enduring faith can only come from one who never changes. How many of you change? I do on a daily basis throughout the course of a day. And so my faith dare not ever rest upon me. It must rest in him who never changes. Who is always the same. Who gave this. He is the source of my faith. He is the object of my faith. And until the end we must believe in his name. In the totality of who he is. Do you know that name this morning? Have you come to a point where you have tired of your own self-efforts at religion, at at your own self-made faith because it just seems so futile and it seems like it fails over and over again, then this morning I call you, believe in that name. Believe in the totality of what Jesus says in his word. Accept all that he reveals about himself to be true. Cast all of your need for salvation upon him. And all of him. And you will be saved. Let's bow our heads. This morning we have the special opportunity to come at this time to the Lord's table and to receive what Christ has done for us in in memoriam. But it only means anything to those who believe. To those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who have experienced his grace and his mercy in salvation. What a great salvation it is. And so I ask you again this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed as we consider our own life. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe Have you received what he's revealed about himself? That he is the son of God who came for you? That he lived a perfect life in your place? Because let's face it, none of us have lived a perfect life. We couldn't because we were born sinners. We didn't even have a shot at it. We'd inherited our sin nature. Therefore, we we sinned because we were already sinners. But Christ didn't. He lived a perfect life in our place. He went to the cross and carried the sins of those who believe on him. So that those sins could be punished in his body on that tree and not later in us. 
He then rose victorious over the grave because the Father accepted his sacrificial death on our behalf. Absorbing the wrath and the punishment of God for our sins. Do you believe that? Are you hoping in that? Are you trusting fully in that? If you're not, today's the day of salvation for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in His name. Trust in all that He has done. Rest in Him. Look to Him. Confess to Him. Know that when you do, He saves who respond to the truth of who he is. Father, we come before you now with this sobering reminder of these great truths. Thank you, Father, that for so many in this room, you have given the right to become the children of God. We couldn't do it. We tried and we failed. The people of Jesus' day, as religious as they were, and no one has ever superseded their spirituality or their religiosity, and they failed. It's only because of you, Lord Jesus, and who you are and what you have done that we can become the children of God. So we bow to you and we praise you for all that you have done. And if there is someone who has not believed, they've not received that gift of yourself, which you offer in this gospel and throughout the whole Bible, may today be the day that they humbly bow before you and receive what you are, who you are, and what you have done for them. Use this time as we hold the bread in our fingers, as we hold the cup, as we reflect on that sinless life that you live for us, that life that was ground out, not because of your sin, but because of ours. As we grind the bread between our teeth, it was your life snuffed out that we might be given life through the cup, through the blood of Christ which cleanses us from every sin that fulfills the covenant to redeem his people from sin and to give them life in place of death. And so as we drink that, may we remember and may we celebrate in Lord Jesus, may you be present with us in our minds and in our hearts as we think upon and believe and worship you in this solemn act. May you be there with us as we meditate upon you, who you are, and all that you've done. We pray these things for your own glory. Amen.